from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us. It's been a while since you and I, Wendy, have recorded a podcast. It's true. You they come out every week. You receive them once a week, but we don't always record weekly. In fact, we often don't. Because of my, usually because of my crazy schedule and travels. And I, gosh, I've been a lot of places since we last sat down and recorded an episode. That's I right. taught a TOB1 in Wisconsin. Then I went to Sweden and Denmark. Mm-hmm. I took my son, Isaac, who is 16 and... Our son, Isaac, I should say. <laughs> we had him together. Sure, indeed. We did. Thank you. And he had learned S- Swedish in homeschooling. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to go to Sweden, so I had some talks in Denmark. And Isaac came along with me. And to my astonishment, everybody we met in Sweden said Isaac spoke amazing Swedish, like with the accent and everything. Yeah, we had no way of knowing that because we don't speak Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) And I had one of the, I've been around the world. I've been some amazing, amazing places, but I went to the most amazing, I think probably the most amazing place I've ever been, Mm. which is the island of, dang it, I forget it now. Visby? Well, the Visby's the town, but the island, I forget the name of the island, but it's an island off the coast of Sweden. It's part of Sweden. The town was Visby. And within, A half a square mile, Isaac and I saw probably seven or eight ruins of old churches Mm. built in like the 1100s, 1100s, 1200s, but they all were abandoned during the Reformation. So they're just like the stone skeletons of these churches Mm. remain. And a couple of them were, were barred off. You couldn't go in, but the majority of them, they're just open. You can walk right in. You can go up these old stone staircases and and wind around up into what might have been like a bell tower area or something. It was incredible. Like in in the in the United well, not that you would ever ever have such a thing in the United States, a mm-hmm. church from the 1100s. But you know, even historical things that we do have, you always have to pay to get in, and there's always a chain. You can't get past certain areas. Or right. this was just open. Like this is just normal life for the citizens of Visby. It was quite amazing. There's a YouTube short, uh, just a one-minute video that I think was posted on our YouTube channel in which I, I just show the camera, through the camera, this one stone church we went uh-huh. went into. It was amazing. So, we'll put a link to that um, video in the uh, in the notes of this episode if you want to check out this amazing yeah. stone church built in the 1100s. Crazy, crazy stuff. And then I came home and taught a... Uh, I had a few days off to recover. Thank you. Thanks be to God. And then I just finished a few days ago teaching my favorite course to teach, the Marian Mystery Course. Amazingly beautiful, grace-filled week. Thank you to all the students that were there. I know we have a lot of podcast listeners who come to our courses. Thanks for coming. Yes, and thank you to all those who introduced themselves to us. Let us know that they listened to the podcast. Your faces are in our minds as we are speaking now, and that's what I love about meeting the people who listen, is that I can uh, imagine them as, as we're talking. Yeah, so I, love I that. see faces too. That's yeah. a blessing. Yeah. Can you update us on the TOB Institute right now? Yeah. Uh, one thing I just want to 
it's shout out. We were getting down to the wire here on our cruise in France that you and I, Wendy, will be leading. Yeah. We have only eight cabins remaining for this cruise. So if you have been thinking, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe, I'm not sure. Well, if you're really, if you want to do it, now's the time to come. Uh, if you've been putting it off, there are only eight cabins left, so would love for you to be with us. Join us on this amazing cruise. We're going to be starting off in Lourdes. If you want to do the extension, we'll start in Lourdes. Otherwise, we get the boat in Paris. We go up the Seine River, and we're going to be following in the footsteps, as I've said many times on this podcast, of Therese in a particular way, linking theology of the body with the little way. And I'm, I'm really excited to share that. And I'm really excited to have people get to have time with you, Wendy. Thank you. And I'm excited, of course, to have time with you. Thank you. That'll be special. Yes. And it's the end of October. And we do we do have this episode, by the time this airs, it'll be uh, a week before we start the TOB1 here in Pennsylvania. And I believe there are a few spots left. If you're like a last-minute, spontaneous mm -hmm. mover and shaker, and you want to get on a plane, or if you're in driving distance to come to Pennsylvania and take the TOB1 from July... Is it July 9th? Is that a Sunday? Yes. July 9th to the, whatever the next Friday is, do the math, July to the, I don't know, <laughs> 14th. 14th, I guess. <laughs> yeah, July 9th to the 14th. We'll, we'll have a link for that below as well if you're one of those last minute people and want to come when there are a few spots. Mm -hmm. Would you like to hear a question from one of our patrons? Let's do it. This is from a patron named Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Thank you both for the podcast. I've been a faithful listener from the beginning. In fact, you wow. answered a question of mine in episode 10. <laughs> I've gone back and been edified by it numerous times. Oh, that's great. My wife and I practice NFP and have been open to life. We have five beautiful daughters. Blessed am I among women. That being said, my wife and I struggle immensely in our sexual intimacy, particularly in her physical response. She feels that it is really unfair that the only time she has any sort of physical interest in sex is during times of fertility. Once we enter into an infertile time, she loses that interest entirely. This leaves both of us confused and at odds at times. I struggle with just wanting to make sure my desire for union doesn't come from a place of lust or mm. self-gratification, but from a real desire to be united and together. She feels that the church's prohibition on contraceptive methods is anti-woman. Oh, dear God, have mercy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I'm so sorry. That hits me right in the gut so I know. Let me, let me finish. Okay, sorry. Here. Ouch. In the sense that she can't enjoy fertility time sex without the added reality that we could conceive again, which would be a blessing, but one we're not ready for at this point in our lives. I don't know how to respond to that or how to cultivate unity when we are both confused and hurt. Any help is truly appreciated. Oh, oh, bless you, Thomas. These, these are the real nitty-gritty realities of married life and fidelity to the church's teaching. Uh, and there is a cross to carry here. Any, any, <laughs> any attempt to live a married life without a willingness to carry the cross is not going to be an authentic married life. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We commit 
We commit to married love in front of an altar of sacrifice under a crucified bridegroom with a wailing bride at the foot of the cross. Uh, that's, you know, in the symbolism of what happened at Calvary, Mary at the foot of the cross, Jesus calls her woman, right? And whenever Jesus calls Mary woman, we're at a wedding. The symbolism here is new Adam, new Eve, obviously in the, in the realm of blood and flesh, Mary is always Jesus's mother, but in this mystical sense, she symbolizes the church, the bride. So there we are, we're, we commit to married love in front of an altar of sacrifice, beneath a crucifix, where there's a crucified bridegroom and a wailing bride at the foot of the cross. This is our faith. Uh, now, we're not masochists. We're not looking for suffering. But fidelity to love inevitably involves suffering. Thomas, I just want to first show reverence to the real agony here. This is mm -hmm. the agony of love. This is the agony of fidelity to the church. And it's all the more agonizing if one or the other or both of the spouses think the church is slapping down some odd prohibition to keep people from having fun or make life difficult. Or And, and everybody heard it in my voice when I heard it, anti-woman, oh my Lord. That, that just hit me so painfully because... Everything the church teaches here is to uphold, in a very particular way, the dignity of woman. What is woman's dignity? Woman's dignity is that she is, this is not her only dignity, but this is integral to woman's dignity, right? What's the difference between a man and a woman? A man is the kind of being that procreates outside of himself, and a woman is a kind of being that procreates within herself. This is a particular dignity of woman. She is the bearer of new life and the ultimate dignity of woman. We dove into this so deeply last week at the Mary Course. The ultimate dignity of woman is revealed in the fact, this is basic, fundamental, biblical truth, God comes to us through woman. Woman's particular gift to the world is that her body brings God in the flesh. Woman's body has become, if Jesus is who he said he was, second person of the Trinity, a divine person, if he's God, then woman's body has become heaven on earth, the dwelling place of the most high God. How do we reverence that temple? How do we reverence that mystery? Everything the church teaches about marital love, fertility, the, the damage to our dignity that contraception is, all of that is in a very particular way meant and intended to uphold the dignity of woman. So to interpret the church's teaching here as anti-woman is to fail to understand what a woman truly is. Woman is this mystery designed to bring life to the world. I don't think any woman would feel loved and honored if a man were to say to her, I'll only have sex with you if you get a nose job. I'll only have sex with you if you get breast implants. Because I don't like the way God actually made you. Uh, I don't like the way you've come from the hand of God. So you have to change something fundamental about yourself in order for me to love you. 
I don't think any woman would feel loved in that way. Wendy, I know there are ways that you have felt deeply unloved by me because in especially in our early relationship, I didn't know how to receive you from the hands of God in ways that caused you a lot of pain, and rightly so, it caused you a lot of pain. Because uh, that's painful stuff. I'm not loved as I am. My point here with the nose job or the boob job, does it make, is it any difference? Is there, is there any difference in saying, I'll only have sex with you if you sterilize yourself? I don't, I don't like this about you. Or for the woman to say, I don't like this about me. I don't like the way God made me. I'm going to change, I'm going to fundamentally alter the way God made me so that I can have uh, a sexual experience other than God, other than the way God made me. And if we were thinking, if we were, if we were considering some trifle, like, like um, cutting your fingernails, right? You might say, well, well, God made our fingernails to grow and we cut our fingernails uh, isn't that immoral? Shouldn't we just, should we just let our fingernails grow and not do anything about it? Should we just let our hair grow and not do anything about it? Okay, fingernails and letting your hair grow, changing those things about the way God made us. Uh, you cannot compare fingernails and hair growth to human fertility. What is the end? What is the natural end and purpose of the sexual act? God gave us genitals as the power to generate to participate in the eternal exchange of love found in the Trinity, which is an exchange of generation. From all eternity, the Father is generating the Son to share with the Son the love of the Holy Spirit. We have the absolute honor, the absolute privilege of imaging the Trinity when we enter into the genital act. The genital act is the kind of act designed for the generation of children. If we say, I want the pleasure of the act, but I'm going to nix the possibility that this act would generate children, I will willfully render this act sterile, then what we are saying is, I want the pleasure of an orgasm, I want the satisfaction of the pleasure that comes from this act, but I don't really want to enter into this act as God designed it. I don't really want to enter into my full identity and dignity as a person made in the image and likeness of God. I'm going to X something out of this equation. And in a very particular way, we're Xing something out of the woman because she's the one who bears the life and carries the child. That, if you understand what a woman is in her full splendor and her full dignity and her full honor and her full privilege, to render her womb sterile is anti-woman. It is against how God made woman. It is against her. It is anti-woman. To, to change... It, you can't say you love Michelangelo's Mona Lisa if you went up to it with a razor blade and started slicing parts out of it that you didn't like. You can't say I love uh, Mona, uh, the Mona Lisa and, and I love uh, my brains. What did I, who's, who did the Mona Lisa? Leonardo. Leonardo da Vinci. You can't say you love Leonardo da Vinci and you can't say you love the Mona Lisa if you're ch cutting pieces out of it. You can't say you love woman. You can't say you honor the dignity of woman if you're Xing, not just some trifle like cutting her fingernails or trimming her hair or shaving her armpits. But we're talking, we're talking about Xing out something that is essential to who God made woman to be. That's what we're talking about here. To speak of something anti, you have to know what the positive is, right? If you have the positive vision of woman, contraception, abortion, these are anti-woman. Mm -hmm. When we project anti-woman 
uh, notions onto what the church is teaching. It means we have a, a different notion of what a woman is, right? We have a, a, a contrary notion to what a woman is. So, so my, my dear brother Thomas, uh, something from the world's understanding of what a woman is has seeped into your dear wife's heart. And you, brother Thomas, you are your wife's number one intercessor. And you are called to love your wife here as Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? He bears in himself all the lies she has believed. He bears in himself all of her wounds. He bears in himself all of her sins, and he offers them to the Father. And if, if I mean, this is, the, this is the incredible call that a husband has, to bear in his heart the burdens of his wife, to present them with Jesus to the Father unto the purpose of her healing, her redemption, her restoration, her walking in her full dignity. I know we're, we're talking about some very practical realities about fertility, a, a woman's peak desire for sexual intercourse is typically during the fertile time, and there's resentment going on here because in her peak fertile time, you're abstaining because you have good reason, it sounds, to avoid another pregnancy. Uh, I'm going to pass it to you, Wendy, to talk from that woman's perspective about, and we've been on our own journey here, uh, but I'll just, I'll just throw this out there. When we reduce the sexual act to the merely biological level, as in, obviously our biology plays an integral role here, right? We're talking sexual intercourse, our, our bodies, our biology plays an integral role here. But there's a danger here of reducing the sexual act to an animal instinct. And for the sexual act to be what it is genuinely meant to be between persons, between a husband and a wife, right? What's the difference between the copulation of animals and the lovemaking of a husband and a wife? Well, it's precisely the love. And the love comes, if it's genuinely love, it comes from freedom. Not merely from an instinct that I'm following. Not merely from a rise in my hormone level. It, it comes from the heart, the, the choice. I want to be one with you. Whether my body is following along or not, or aiding the union with, with a rise in, in, in hormones, I mean, those, we're not to reject those, we're not to dishonor those, uh, but when they are there, praise God, when they are not, the act can come from a place of freedom that gives even deeper meaning than merely, I want to have intercourse tonight because I'm responding to, to hormones. In fact, that really cheapens the act. If we're, if we're only wanting to have intercourse because of a rise in hormone levels, well, that's actually robbing us of something personal. It's taking away something of our freedom. Again, that's not to downplay the role that our hormones can, can play, right? But even when our hormones are at peak level, and guess what, guys, their hormones are at peak level pretty much every day of the month. And we need to learn how to abstain, right? When our hormones are at peak level, uh, there's, there's, there's a true exercise and calling, a, a true exercise of freedom and a true calling into a deeper freedom in learning how to abstain, that we are not merely responding to hormones. Uh, and, and that, Thomas, would be the deeper invitation here to a personal free gift of self. But I'm, I'm going to 
punt to you now, Wendy. Yeah. See thank what you, you have to say as thank from a you. woman's perspective. Thank you so much for all you shared. And I, I know that it's so important for us to yeah, recognize how much the enemy is opposed to our marriages and opposed to our understanding the Lord's deep abiding love for us, the church's motherhood toward us, the safety that we're meant to find in that loving motherhood of the church that has, you know, it almost sounds to me like um, Thomas's wife is feeling abandoned, you know, by her mother and in this struggle that has obviously caused a lot of suffering. Um, I can tell from Thomas's question and that, that they are a couple who has, you know, so much in their hearts is in line with God's desires for their marriage. And this is been a a deep struggle, understandably. So I just, that my first prayer as I think of you both is is, uh, related to that, um, the pain of if our mothers would abandon us Mm. um, Mm. and how to seek healing for that pain because that's a very real pain. I'm mentioning that and then I'll come back to that. But I I do want to talk about the physical response as I read this question from Thomas, I felt like I, I just needed to do a little research because I don't want listeners to get the impression that this is the experience of every couple using natural family planning, um, that every um, couple is experiencing a, a lack of interest during the time of infertility. There are plenty of listeners who don't have personal experience to draw from and could surmise that point, from this Wendy, question. Yeah. I don't want you to surmise that. And and I also need to admit that that isn't my experience. So that isn't our experience as a couple. So I'm not speaking to this question as like, been there, girl. I actually haven't. I have talked to other people. You're not the first person to mention this experience, but it isn't my own. Um, and so I share that uh, in part like for the other listeners, because if you do have this struggle, you may have maybe found others that do as well. And it could kind of reinforce this notion, like everybody feels this way, therefore the church is mean <laughs> or something. Um, and I, I just I, I just want to mention that that's not everybody's experience, but it is my experience, our experience of a certain almost like unreliability of um, my physical response, a certain mystery right, about right. it that kind of can has caused us struggle and and frustration at times. So that sense of like our differences, you know, a certain reliability of a physical response on your part versus a certain uncertainty about mm-hmm, the response mm-hmm. on my part. Um, so that I can draw from that in some ways in speaking. But one of the questions I asked myself and sought answers to is, whether there are treatments for this particular experience. Because since it isn't everyone's experience, it's it's an experience that you might call like low sexual desire. And I want to affirm that it is worth addressing issues that impact our ability to come together as husband and wife. It's, it's a worthy task to want to remedy that um, experience of that situation. And what I learned through my research was that one of the things that can be worth looking into is whether a medication that a woman is taking to treat something else Uh 
has a side effect on her physical response. Why is that worth looking into? Well, because there may be a different medication that could treat the same problem without that side effect. And so that's definitely worth exploring with a doctor. And I actually talked with a woman who is an, uh, a doctor who works with couples just to get you know perspective on that. And she definitely said that is a place to begin to look at. Are there any medications that are having a negative effect? But she also said, um, and I, I, fa- I found myself thinking these same things. It's so sensitive because no one who's been suffering and struggling wants anyone to imply, and I don't want to imply, that somehow this is your fault that right. you're experiencing this. And I don't want to say that, and I don't believe it. But I do know that I have been through seasons in my life, mothering young children is a, a particularly one that I'm particularly aware of, where a lot was kind of against my full rest and restoration that would be put me in the right space. Would be conducive yes. to marital union. Right. Yes. And so I I don't fault either of you for whatever circumstances there are going on in your life that um, could be just contributing to a certain less than optimal response. Because a lot of times it's the sacrifice of parenthood or other circumstances in our lives that maybe we can't fix right away. But uh, this doctor I spoke to specifically said, you know, it is best to for me, she said, to, to meet with a couple and really talk to them together about what might help their relationship in this way, besides the obvious one I mentioned of looking at any medication side effects. But she said she has had the experience, um, she shared a particular story of a couple that because of things going on in the wife medically, that she counseled to fully abstain for two years. Wow. And she told the couple this that's together a, in her office. It's a very unusual situation. It is. But that was their particular situation. And she said the husband looked at the wife and said, I will make sure that you feel loved. Mm. That that was his response. Wasn't, uh, how am I supposed to feel loved if we're doing that? Yeah, but yeah. but his heart was toward wow, her beautiful. that you feel loved. Do you and, know why this was the, pers- the the suggestion to abstaining for two years? That just sounds so extreme. I don't think it matters to the story, well, <laughs> and well, I didn't ask. Well, I'm, I'm concerned that couples are out there thinking, oh, well, we might have to abstain for two years to get our sex life back on track. I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. No, no, no. This was a medical si- a circumstance. Medical? Not. Okay. It wasn't just... Okay. No, no. okay, I'm taking a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I... I didn't think that was relevant. I didn't ask, sorry. so I'm sorry I don't have that information. Because what struck me was that um, response of the husband. And yeah, that's well, that's what I wanted. God and bless that's that what, husband. Yeah, that's why the doctor shared it with me, was because of the understanding that we are called to learn how to communicate in our affection in a way that causes the other to feel loved, and it could be part. And I, I suspect it will be a part of Thomas's wife's healing to be given permission to simply abstain and learn to experience what brings her feelings of being loved and consoled 
in her suffering. I'm yes, not saying yes. it takes away the yes. suffering, but yes. when we are suffering, the closeness and understanding and tenderness of our spouse can get us through that. And and I think that that is needed because I, I feel like, I don't know the timing, of course, but I do feel like there is a need for a step back from marital union for a time in this relationship in order for there to be a growth in real deeper understanding of what does she desire when her body is so unresponsive as it is, as it has been lately. How can he show her deep love? And how can that open up avenues of grace and conversation and um, ways to just open them to the Lord? Because I think this continual trying and being frustration frustrated, sorry, uh, by experiencing desire and abstaining and then coming together without a physical response, this repeated cycle is causing just a lot of complex hurt feelings between them. Yeah. And, a, and a, a break from that with a lot of prayer and a lot of patience, I think, is really needed in order to get through. And I, I do have great hope for this couple that there's there's something more. And I'll just tell you, Thomas, and all our listeners, that from my experience as a 50-year-old woman, the way my body is at, was at a certain age is not the way it is now. I, I have communicated things at times to Christopher. This is really helpful to me. This is not helpful to me. And then that changes. Right. So I don't want you to expect this is just the way my wife is and always will be. Uh, so that I, I just, that's part of the mystery and challenge of marital love is that communicating about those realities. What I'm led to just say to try to bring our reflections on this question, which is so important uh, to a close, is that what you're saying, Wendy, in summary, I think, is that abstinence itself can be a profound experience of love. And you and I know that in our married life. Uh, we've had lots of times of uh, needing to avoid a pregnancy and regular times of abstinence. We've had extended times of abstinence. I kind of you know, I was commenting on that sounds extreme, two years, but you and I had over a year of abstinence at one point in our marital relationship that drew us very close to one another. We were compelled to learn how to show love mm -hmm. in ways that didn't lead to intercourse and didn't lead to sexual climax at all. And that, I look back at that period of our lives as a time of real growth. And this is what I think is scary. And this is where the worldly message gets in there. Like, if you don't have uh, a sexual outlet, you're going to explode. What we desire more than a sexual outlet is genuine love. Mm -hmm. And genuine love is impossible without mastery of our sexual desires. If our sexual desires are masters of us, and we are not masters of them, we cannot be a true gift to one another. And this is why I always recommend to couples, whether you have reason to avoid a child or not, you should be working regular times of abstinence into your married life because that abstinence uh, fosters and solidifies your self-mastery. And the self-mastery is the prerequisite to the love that we really desire. And the love is what feeds body and soul far more 
than responding to a, a sexual desire that's aroused by an instinct that I couldn't control. Uh, that actually is contrary to our dignity and it wounds us. So am I right, Wendy, that that's, that's behind your recommendation here is this fostering of a tenderness, a self-mastery that fosters a love that we build through being put to the test in, in abstinence. Am I, am I saying this correctly? And that is, yes, that is definitely what I want to say. And I did mention that I wanted to come back to that sense of the abandonment Oh, wound. yeah, 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 yeah. And I do want to come back to that. And I just, if you don't mind, if I just say a short prayer please, for this please, couple and please. other couples in a, a similar circumstance, and I'll include that in the prayer. Lord, I lift up this couple and every married couple who, in hearing this um, discussion, is kind of feeling they relate to something of this couple's experience of um, very painful, confusing difficulties in using natural family planning. Um, Lord, I lift up all these married couples to you, and I thank you for the graces you have already poured out in their lives that have enabled them to embrace their marriages, embrace their spouses as they are, to give thanks to you, Lord, for the incredible honor and gift of being called to love one human being in mm. such a profound, meaningful way. Lord, you know there's an enemy of our marriages, there's an enemy of our hearts who would use the suffering to pull us apart and pull us away from you. But your spirit is stronger, and I call upon your Holy Spirit right now. You, your Holy Spirit is the bond of husband and wife in a sacramental marriage. Stir up the flames of the spirit. Shine the light of that fire into these mm. married couples. Mm that they would recognize you are there. You are there to lead them through the difficulties that they're in, that you want to heal every aspect of them. Lord, we, we lift up the painful, painful situations to you and ask you, beg you to make something beautiful by your grace out of these times, that they would look back on them with gratitude for your faithfulness, your tender love, your closeness to them. Lord, I pray in a particular way that anyone who is feeling abandoned by Mother Church, that is not the truth. That is not from you, Lord, but that is a painful feeling to have, a very painful feeling. So I ask you, Lord, please, please to comfort your children. Yes, Lord. To allow them to experience the restoration of that bond of love with the church, our mother, who truly, truly nourishes and protects us in all the stages of our journey of life. Amen. 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 And because Thomas is a patron, I'll throw this out. Uh, we are working on some new programs to for our patrons, and one of the ones we're going to be filming in the next couple months is a a program for married couples diving into the rich, rich teaching from John Paul II's book, Love and Responsibility. And there he says, the internal problem of every marriage is allowing the marriage bed itself to be purified so that it becomes a truly personal experience of profound love. Uh, that's the internal problem of every marriage. 
John Paul II says, and we're going to be diving into that in this program that will be posted on our patron community. Hopefully, uh, we're going to be filming it sometime this summer, and it'll be out sometime in the fall. We'll keep mm. everybody posted, mm, of course. Yes, yes, let's update people about that. Thank you, Thomas. You remain in our prayers, brother, yes. you and your wife. Yes. Thanks for sharing that question so vulnerably. Our next question is from a listener named Mariana. Hi, Mariana. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. My heart feels troubled. I've always considered myself overweight, even when I wasn't. And lately, I've been struggling so much to love my body and feel feminine. For so long, I've felt compared to my sister, who has four kids and looks like a model. I've had two, and I'm currently pregnant, but I constantly hear comments from others that my sister is thin and beautiful, or just all kinds of things about femininity and being thin. Of course, I know that being thin doesn't mean you're feminine, but I feel kind of lost in my femininity, and it seems like my constant prayer and work is towards losing weight and feeling confident. Hmm. Ariana, this is the word that comes to me as I hear this question that comes from your heart, comes from a place, as you said, you're troubled, a place of pain. You, Mariana, are unrepeatable. There is no other you. There never was. There never will be another you. When we live in that truth, we realize what a terrible injustice it is to our own dignity, our own hearts, our own unrepeatable personhood to compare ourselves to others or to have other people compare us to other people. Mm -hmm. You are incomparable. You are unrepeatable. Uh, your sister is your sister, and you are you. Your sister has the body that God gave her, and you have the body that God gave you. And your body is designed by God to reveal in this world a beam of his glory that no other human being reveals. That is the truth, I believe, Mariana, that that I'm in, uh, that I, be th this is the truth, I believe, that will be a healing balm, B-A-L-M, a healing balm on your own heart. And my prayer for you is to that you would enter in ever more deeply, because it's not a once and done thing. Uh, we're wounded human beings, and we've been formed psychologically even by images in this culture that have gone deep, and it's kind of a muscle memory that we return to. I got to look like this to be lovable. I got to look like my sister to be lovable. If I only looked like my sister, I'd be lovable. Those, those can become like tape recordings that just replay and replay in our minds and our hearts. So we need to let those truths that counteract those lies go deeper and deeper into our mm, hearts. Mm. I'm going to speak it right into your heart, Mariana. There's no other you. You are unrepeatable. And because you are unrepeatable, it is an injustice to your personal dignity as a woman to compare yourself to others. We all do this all the time because this is the way we're programmed to think in our world. I compare myself to other people. I know, Wendy, you've struggled with this too. It's just part of being human. But when we, when we name it as a lie, when we name it as contrary to our dignity, and when we stand in that truth and we let that truth come in, this would be my invitation to you, Mariana, is to take some real periods of, of prayer, 
maybe over the course of weeks or months, just to let that truth go more deeply into your heart, where you come to prayer and you say, Lord, I put out into your, into your heart these wounds of my heart. Show me where these lies first came in. Maybe it'll take you back to a memory when you were four years old and someone first compared you to your sister. Or maybe you were 10 years old and you saw some commercial that, that got into your mind and your heart and formed and shaped you or some ad in a magazine or some movie or something that, where these lies started to get in. Ask the Lord for an instant replay, so to speak, of where these lies started entering your heart. The Lord knows exactly where these lies started entering your heart. And he can take you back to those precise moments in your heart's memory, and he can insert truth where lies got in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've experienced this on countless occasions in my own prayer life where lies that got into my mind, lies that got into my heart, the Lord takes me back to the memory of where that lie came from, and he begins to replace that lie with the truth. So that would be my my invitation to you, Mariana, to, to take your heart as it is, just as it is, in that troubled place, right? We often think, well, I go to prayer and I got to put on my pretty face. Uh, 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 uh. The catechism says prayer is where we let our masks fall and we present ourselves to the Lord as we are and we allow him to love us as we are. We agree in prayer with the love that he has for us as we are and we let that love purify us so that we can become more and more who we are meant to be. Uh, Wendy, what are your thoughts here for for Mariana, your sister? I love everything that you just said, Christopher. So true, just sensing that um, the truth that needs to be spoken into this um, situation. Uh, My only additional thoughts are, one is that um, there are specific people in Mariana's life who are reinforcing this idea. And so... I, Christ said, pray for them, pray for our enemies. And I know that you may think, well, these are my family members or my friends, they're not my enemies. But the call to pray for these people that are reinforcing this in your life is is from the Lord himself. He called us to pray for our enemies. And in this, in the sense that these people are reinforcing this lie that is from the enemy, then Pray for them. Pray for the conversion of their hearts and minds. They're transferring onto you fears and pains in their own hearts, uh, probably not consciously, but it's it, you have a heart that is sensitive to the truth, that is so troubled by this challenge to the truth of your own dignity uh, that you're being reminded of. And it's so to pray for them, even as you're also praying to hear the Lord in in how he wants to heal your heart. And the other thing I want to encourage you to do is in prayer to ask the Lord, what does he want you to be praying and working on? Because you your last comment was that your your constant prayer and work is towards losing weight and feeling confident. And so I don't think he has put that desire in your heart. I think that's come from this uh, these other sources. What does he want you to be praying about? And how does he want to see you shine in this world? 
so that you can have that sense of not like, I have this job to do, oh God, please help me, but like, Lord, what have you given me to do? How do you see me? How do you want me to grow? And so that, like that need for a reorientation of, of the prayer life towards healing, towards intercession, and towards openness to what God has in store for us. That's so important, Wendy. I think what you said there about how we can reinforce the lie by by taking on the project of mm. I, uh, if I the way to gain confidence is to lose weight. Gosh, that's a reinforcement of the lie at some level that I'm not lovable if I'm overweight. And and this is not to criticize you know those who who want to lose weight for for appropriate reasons. There are sometimes obviously appropriate reasons to want to lose weight. But if we're trying to lose weight motivated by the idea that I'm only lovable if I lose weight, well then we're reinforcing a lie. If we're trying to gain confidence in ourselves, uh, by losing weight because I, I'm not confident when I'm overweight. Well, where does our true confidence come from? Confide, with faith. That's what the word means, with faith. Confide, to have faith that I am loved as I am. That's what will give you confide, confidence, right? With faith, you can, you can grow in learning. I am loved right as I am in the mess of my life, whether I'm overweight or whatever it might be, I am loved, I am loved, I am loved. Then maybe you could lose weight if that's the right thing to do for health reasons or whatever without staking your identity there, without placing your sense of lovableness there. That's confidence with faith, I am loved as I am. Our next question is from a listener named Mitch. Hi, Mitch. Hey, Christopher and Wendy. You both have been incredible instruments of God and His grace, especially in my marriage and family. Glory to God for your yes to God's will for your life and for the sake of the church. Glory to God indeed. With that said, I'm discerning to become a permanent deacon, currently in the second year of aspirancy. I was struck to learn that a married deacon isn't just a deacon in his parish and liturgical ministries, but he's also a husband deacon and a father deacon in his marriage and family. There's no deacon hat he can take off. Mm. His diaconate penetrates everything. What does our TOB lens offer in light of this unique multifold sacramental vocation of marriage and holy orders as a deacon? That's a great question, Mitch. I, I love the way you articulated it. Uh, even the way you articul articulated it is kind of shining a light on it for me. I'm reading a book right now that I'm finding fascinating. It's called Married Priests, and it's not, let me just say this right up front, it's not some uh, dissenting position uh, in the church that's advocating for the Latin church to change your teaching. It's rather a, a book written primarily by Eastern Catholics, and speaking of the tradition in the Eastern Church of a married clergy. And I've gained a lot of insight reading this book as to what it means to bring holy orders into married life. From a priestly perspective, there are, there are thousands of married Catholic priests in the world. We, we have to just let that sink in. When somebody asks me, why can't a Catholic man be married who's a priest, I say he can be, 
right? Uh, you have to breathe with both lungs, east and west, right? The Eastern Church, just as Catholic as the Western Church, they have a tradition, a thousand, thousands, two thousand years old of married clergy. And even in the Western Church, we have Protestant ministers who convert, who are allowed to be ordained uh, as Catholic priests, even in the West, married men. So, this is an extension, I, with my answer is an extension of some of the things I've learned just mm. recently reading this book, that yeah. holy orders in the domestic church, right? That there is in the sacrament of holy orders, which only men can receive because, why do we, uh, why can only men be, receive the sacrament of holy orders? Holy orders is conforming the person to Christ the bridegroom, Right? Holy orders is spiritual fatherhood. And in order to be capable of being a father in the spirit, you must be capable of being a father in the flesh. The church takes this so seriously that a castrated man cannot be ordained a priest. Right? You have to have what it takes to be a father. Holy orders is spiritual fatherhood. So you, as a married man, you have a sacrament. You have two sacraments at your service here. That's the kind of angle I would take here. You have two sacraments at your service to conform you to Christ, the bridegroom, who in his gift of himself to the church is also the perfect image in his flesh of God the Father. So Deacon Mitch, or soon to be Deacon Mitch, God willing, you're going to be going through, you said you're only in the second year, so you have a ways to go, but God willing, you will be ordained a deacon through the sacrament of holy orders. You will now have added grace to conform your life into the image of Christ, enabling you, and you know, I've, I've never had this question presented to me, so I'm, uh, I would have to spend more time with it and do a little more research to really give a, a more thorough answer. But my sense of it, just hearing this question for the first time, is you have, by a special grace of a special sacrament called Holy Orders, you have a, an additional drawing point to draw grace to conform your life to Christ as a perfect image of the Father and as bridegroom to the church. And that's, that's pretty dang special. Something that just strikes me as I'm just kind of imagining what this could sound like to a person hearing you, you know, your husband deacon, a father deacon, it it could sound like um, some kind of uh, necessitating some kind of change in the way you're a, a husband or a father that makes sure everybody knows, wait, I'm, I'm a deacon, that I feel like is... Not that Mitch directly said that, but I'm just imagining yeah. someone could hear that that yeah. way, that I think it's important to realize that the grace is needing to be at work in you, but your relationships with your spouse and your children needs to remain natural. It can't yes. be forced into kind of a different mold. You know, it's not natural for a man to get dressed in, uh, you know, the clothes of a priest to sit in the pew. So that would be unnatural. But you you have something unique, uh, you know, in your ministry, say, on the altar, that you that becomes natural when you're ordained. But your natural way of ministering in your family as the husband and father that they know it needs to remain natural. You can't 
It's only through your knowledge of the Lord is giving you this grace and you're open to it that it will flow in that in those relationships through deeper blessings, but but not in a forced way. Yeah, I, I think that's say. very important. Yeah. Uh, it's grace perfects nature. Yeah. That's the key. It doesn't obliterate nature. It doesn't uh, add on top of it something unnatural to it. It it perfects it. And and that means we have to, I would just invite you, uh, if you do get ordained a deacon, to consciously, prayerfully, regularly open the natural reality of being a husband and a father, which is also raised to the supernatural level of a sacrament through the grace of the sacrament of marriage, but to open those, open those natural realities to the perfection, the perfecting work of the grace, both of your sacrament of marriage and your sacrament of holy orders. I think that's the right way to look at it, Wendy. And I think that brings us to the end of this episode. That was a long one, but I think it was worth giving the time we gave to that first question where we had to get into some some yeah deeper layers. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for the questions that you send our way. Keep them coming. And patrons, remember, you can submit your question on your patron page, which will give you a better chance of having your question answered. Uh, we love you guys. We're so honored to be part of this podcast, uh, bringing you hopefully answers to questions uh, that bless you. And if you have been blessed, please hit that share button with somebody who needs to hear what you've heard today. We would be grateful. Until next time, may you know it deeply in your heart as we were saying to Mariana earlier that you are unrepeatable. You're an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.